The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. It says I'm a sole ruler and I'm doing what Hellenistic kings do, but I'm doing it in a Roman way. I'm not really a king. I'm being a Roman person being in charge of the state on my own. I'm sitting in the Hebberden coin room in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And in my hand, I'm holding a contemporary portrait of Julius Caesar. I've come to meet Volker Heuschert, an expert on ancient coins at the museum. And together we're examining some of the highlights from their collection. The coin I'm currently looking at dates from 44 BC, the year of Caesar's assassination. And it shows the great man himself. That might not seem so surprising to us today, but it certainly would have shocked many of his contemporaries. Now, this is really important because this is, apart from an example, uh, about 200 BC, this is really the first time that a living person is depicted on the obverse of a Roman coin. So this is a revolution in Roman iconography. And this is something which only Hellenistic kings did. And in fiercely Republican Rome, this was a complete no-no. And if you look at this coin design more carefully, you will see that Caesar is wearing a laurel wreath, whereas any self-respecting Hellenistic king in the succession of Alexander, would be wearing a diadem, which is a white cloth band tied together. So he's wearing what a triumvat, uh, someone triumphing in Rome would be wearing during the triumph, yeah, a laurel wreath referring to Apollo. But the Caesar on the coin is no oil painting. Even at a distance of more than 2,000 years, it's clear that this is not an idealised portrait of a man. He looks old. His skin has imperfections. What's going on here? Most Hellenistic ruler portraits show an idealised figure, sort of nice features, looking a bit divine and and so on, whereas Caesar doesn't look idealised at all. You can see this is Caesar with warts and all, Possibly, we we don't know exactly how Caesar looked like. Maybe this exaggerates his features even a bit 
think of sort of art historical verism or so, which, which did something like that. So what Caesar is trying to do is do something what a Hellenistic king does, but in a very, very Roman way to distance himself from that. People have thought that this might have been inspired by, by Roman traditions of, of parading death masks of, of ancestors around at funerals and so on. So therefore, this idea of having not idealized portrait, but sort of hyper-realistic portraits, but also in Rome being shown in a realistic way, warts and all, might well convey ideas of authority, age, experience, and so on. Yeah, not, not youthful heroism of, of someone trying to emulate Alexander. I turn over the coin and am confronted by an image of a Roman god. This is Venus, but it's an armed Venus. Yeah, this is Venus Victrix, sort of the victory bringing Venus. Now, Caesar claimed that Venus and Anchises were his ancestors. So this is a, a family reference, but then the, the armed bit, I mean, to, to his military achievements, I mean, favored by the gods and all the rest of it. But I mean, if you think of ancient generals, the, the amount of victories Caesar's uh, Caesar managed to get. Yeah? So, I mean, of all the people, he, he might actually have a claim to say, yes, I was favored by the gods. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have had this. And uh, as we know from ancient uh, uh, sources, people were upset when he did this. And this was just before, a few months uh, that these currents were produced, before he was assassinated for behaving like a Hellenistic king. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, by putting himself on these coins and portraying himself like a king, Caesar was defying the principles of the Roman Republic. He was taking yet another risk, and it was one that would end in disaster. Welcome to Episode 3 of Caesar, Death of a Dictator. In today's episode, we'll be taking the story up to 44 BC, the year when this coin was created, and the year of Caesar's murder. Let's begin, though, with where we left off last time, the violent death of Crassus, one of the three pillars of Rome's first triumvirate. Crassus was killed in 53 BC, when Caesar was still embroiled in the conflict in Gaul. But as these wars drew to a conclusion in the last years of the decade, questions remained about Caesar's next move. His victories in Gaul had only increased his power and influence, which his conservative opponents in the Senate were determined to rein in. Meanwhile, Caesar's relationship with Pompey, the other great Roman general of the age, was coming undone. Pompey was older than Caesar, but he had married his young 
daughter, Julia. I think it was a love match. Uh, They truly loved each other. And so that helped bind Pompey to Caesar. But Julia died. And when Julia died, Pompey was wooed by the senatorial party, the conservative party, Cato among them, and was brought over to the side. And they were able to play on Pompey's vanity, I think, very well. Pompey was an extremely talented general, a brilliant man, but he wanted to have his place in the sun. He wanted to show the Romans that he was every bit as good as the aristocracy. And so they were able to whisper in his ears that Caesar is is rising in power. People are forgetting who you are. They're saying that Caesar's a much better general than you ever were. And so they were really good at playing on Pompey's vanity. And eventually they turned Pompey against Caesar. That's Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, author of a biography of Julius Caesar. As he explained, Caesar's opponents among the Roman establishment managed to lure Pompey against Caesar, and in doing so greatly heightened the risk of civil war. Internal conflict was not what any of the key players really wanted, but was there any other way the hostility towards Caesar could be resolved? The crux of the issue was the nature of Caesar's return to Rome after the Gallic Wars. He hoped to run for consul again, but the rule stated that as soon as he gave up his military command and governorship, he would lose his immunity from prosecution. And he feared that his political opponents would use the legal system to thwart him. So Caesar pushed to be allowed to retain his command until the election. But his rivals in the Senate vetoed this plan. Several attempts were made to strike a deal. It was suggested that the rival generals, Caesar and Pompey, might give up their armies simultaneously but no agreement could be reached. Mistrust remained on both sides. To counter the threat of Caesar, Pompey was given command of two legions, and in response, Caesar reiterated his demand to retain his forces until he became consul. By January 49 BC, it was clear that the talks were not going to succeed. Compromise had failed. Peace was not on the agenda. On the night of the 10th of January, in an act which has become synonymous for passing the point of no return, Caesar led his forces across the Rubicon River that marked the boundary between his Gaulish provinces and Italy itself. The civil war had begun. And as Philip Freeman told me, Caesar began the conflict in a relatively weak position. When the Civil War began, and when Pompey was fighting Caesar, Pompey had a vastly superior army. Caesar had relatively few men to fight this, and and Pompey had all of the great leaders of Rome on his side. But as so many times in his career, he prevailed. In the end, it's for the same reason that Caesar was able to win in Gaul, even though he was now fighting Roman legions led by a very competent general, uh, he would not give up. Caesar would not give up. He tried every innovation, every trick he could think of. He was outnumbered. But in the end, it was the overconfidence, I think, of Pompey and the the men who were with him, all of the leading citizens of Rome before the the great battle where Caesar defeated Pompey. They were sitting around and dividing up the different offices, and they say, oh, I'm going to be consul after we defeat Caesar. And they were they were busy planning the future, while Caesar was very busy planning this battle, and he was able to win. The civil war began promisingly for Caesar, and disastrously for his opponents. As the hero of Gaul marched down the Italian peninsula, Pompey retreated his forces. 
Caesar was welcomed into Rome, and his armies were swelled by more soldiers who had fought with him in the Gallic Wars. Pompey withdrew from Italy entirely, but retained significant support in other parts of the empire. That summer, Caesar crossed into Hispania and defeated the loyalist armies there. However, Pompey's main force in the eastern province of Epirus remained unvanquished. Caesar's great rival made plans to recapture Italy, but Caesar was too quick for him. In January 48 BC, he crossed the Adriatic to Epirus, and the stage was set for a series of clashes, culminating in Caesar's decisive victory at the Battle of Pharsalus on the 9th of August that year. The defeated Pompey fled to Egypt, with Caesar hot on his tail. Egypt was an independent kingdom then, ruled by the Ptolemaic dynasty. Just like Rome, the country was racked by civil war, and Pompey did not receive the warm welcome he was hoping for. Pompey had fled, had gone to Egypt because he had close personal alliances and relationships with the Ptolemaic family. So he was expecting to go to Egypt and to find shelter and support from the dynasty to perhaps go back with a, with a new army, with, with uh, new financing, face Caesar again. It didn't happen that way. Pompey set foot on Egyptian soil and was murdered by Ptolemy's advisers because they thought it would endear them to Caesar and strengthen their hand in the civil war with Cleopatra. So they stabbed Pompey to death, cut off his head, and then when Caesar arrived a little while later to Egypt, they presented him with Pompey's head in a box. That's the voice of Jane Draycott, a classics lecturer at the University of Glasgow. She just mentioned a name who'll remain at the heart of our story until the very end. Cleopatra. At this point, Cleopatra VII was embroiled in a conflict with her brother, Ptolemy IX. They were supposed to be ruling jointly, but instead their supporters had taken up arms against each other. Cleopatra was older and more experienced than her brother, but had to overcome her position as a woman in a man's world. As the rival factions fought over control of Egypt, both sides were looking to the power of Rome for support. Ptolemy had hoped that by killing Pompey, he would gain his enemy's favour but Caesar was not impressed with Ptolemy taking matters into his own hands like this. Pompey was a great man. His nickname is literally Pompeius Magnus Pompey the Great because of his military victories and prowess. And he and Caesar had at one time been very close allies. Pompey had been married to Caesar's daughter, so Caesar had been Pompey's father-in-law as well as his political ally. So there is probably a broader we're Roman, how dare you aspect to this. There's also a a personal dimension. And also it's a very ignominious end for someone to have, to be stepping off a boat onto a beach in full view of his wife, his, his allies and his household and betrayed, you know, going, going somewhere to expect a friendly welcome because for the Romans, the idea of guest friendship and pre-existing alliances and relationships, those were the sort of cornerstone of their political and, and sort of social and cultural dealings with each other. So Pompey had a relationship with Egypt and the Egyptian royal family and was meant to be safe and was meant to be treated well and respected. And for that to be betrayed in the most sort of violent way was an insult on, on many different levels. Ptolemy had messed up and Cleopatra spotted an opportunity. 
Her first meeting with Julius Caesar has been much mythologised. But what really happened there? She had to come back in a sort of clandestine fashion because she, she wasn't in Egypt or she wasn't in Alexandria at that time. Ptolemy's faction were in control of Egypt, were in control of Alexandria. Hence this whole story about her sneaking in to the palace wrapped in a carpet. Now, the carpet is very cinematic. It's it's very dramatic. It's, I suppose, looks like it's it's uh, sort of feasible for somebody to, to carry a rolled up carpet uh, with somebody uh, wrapped up inside it. But it's a mistranslation from the Greek it's actually a sort of linen bed sack. So Cleopatra, rather than being unrolled very uh, dramatically out of carpet and sort of spring up uh, to Caesar, sort of had to clamber out of a sack. So much less sexy. And that, as far as history uh, tells us, was, was their first meeting. And Caesar was immediately taken with her, whether that's her spirit of adventure, her strategic thinking, her sneakiness or her beauty and pizzazz, who can say. More realistically, he was probably uh, still very annoyed about Pompey and uh, <laughs> thought that it would it would present him with an alternative to Ptolemy and, and his murderous advisers. Caesar and Cleopatra became allies and lovers. With Caesar on her side, the Egyptian queen triumphed over her brother and became sole ruler of Egypt. And for Caesar too, the Union promised a great deal beyond just their legendary romance. Caesar, in the sort of immediate here and now, he needed a bit of, I suppose we'd say, downtime from this sort of persistent civil war. He didn't find it because, of course, he ended up being in the centre of someone else's civil war. But he he needed an, an opportunity to sort of take a breath and work out what the next step was with Pompey being dead. But many of Pompey's allies still being alive, his troops not necessarily all being with him at that particular time um, in Egypt. So, so he, his, uh, his forces were spread around. So he had, to, he had to plan his next steps. Running an army is quite expensive. He needed money. He needed resources to help him do that. So the way that the Romans operate in the ancient Mediterranean with the neighbouring territories, neighbouring kingdoms, is they, they have this system of, you might call it client kingship, allied kingship, where the kings and queens of the neighbouring territories have these sort of formal relationships with Rome where they get recognised as the king or the queen of, of their region. Very useful if you're having some kind of family strife about succession. So they get formally recognised and in return they give Rome stuff. Whether that's protecting the border, you know, providing a buffer zone between Rome and, for example, Parthia or, or some other hostile power, or they give them money, they give them resources like agricultural things. Egypt, for example, was was very agriculturally fertile, had a lot of grain, which was very useful to feed Roman citizens. Egypt had also quite a lot of mineral wealth, uh, quarries and mines in the uh, in the deserts. It also had control of the Red Sea trade with India and even China. So Egypt had a lot of natural resources that would be very useful for Rome to, to have access to. So Caesar, it's in his interest in a, in a sort of very mercenary way to make use of the opportunities available to him in Egypt. Cleopatra 
she needed support. She had been deposed in her own kingdom at the point that this was all happening. Her father had only been dead for, for a couple of years and he had almost bankrupted the kingdom, attempting to bribe Romans like Caesar into recognising him as a client king and, and um, supporting him against factions in Egypt. So they both needed something from each other. They both needed assistance. They both needed resources. So while there may well have been a certain amount of personal, romantic, maybe sexual, definitely, feelings between them, it was very much a sort of quid pro quo situation with the the sex being a, a sort of bonus. As Jane alluded to there, despite Pompey's death, the Roman civil wars were not yet over. In the final years of his life, Caesar continued to campaign against Pompey supporters in different parts of the empire, who remained a threat until 45 BC. But at the same time, his status in Rome was reaching new heights. As Sulla had many decades earlier, Caesar became a Roman dictator. In this role, he could rise above the traditional systems of Roman government and exercise absolute power. In the past, this had been a temporary position to deal with moments when Rome was in crisis. But that was all about to change. After a few brief spells as dictator, beginning in 49 BC, Caesar was given a 10-year dictatorship in 46 BC. And then, in 44 BC, he was made dictator for life. This was a moment of great significance, as Philip Freeman explains. It was the end of 500 years of Republican history. What happened was that you no longer had a government ruled by a small group of men, but still ruled by more than one man. You had a government ruled by a single person. So how was this able to happen? Why did so many Romans support the dismantling of their republic? Caesar was able to become dictator because he had the support of the common people and the support of his soldiers. And as we've learned throughout history, if you can control the army and if you can gain the favor of the common people, you can almost always defeat an aristocracy in the end. And so the people of Rome, I think they were so tired. There had been decades of civil war where Romans were fighting Romans and killing each other. They were sick of it uh, and they wanted to bring an end. And so Caesar promised stability and people in the end were willing to trade their liberty for peace and stability. I don't think Caesar wanted, at least in the beginning, to be king of Rome, to be rex of, of, of Rome. That was a dirty word to the Romans, rex, king. I think Caesar wanted to bring some stability and wanted to reorganize Rome. It really needed it. Rome was set up, the government of Rome, which controlled the entire Mediterranean and beyond, was really ruled as if it were a small village. It, it just didn't work very well. It needed a, a total redoing in order to work as an empire. And Caesar wanted to do that. And so he wanted to sweep away those parts of the republic that were holding Rome back. But I think that in the end, he realized that the only way to do this was to be an autocrat. And I think he probably in the end, at least in his own mind, thought that he would let go of the power and let go of the dictatorship, as Sulla actually had uh, decades before. But I, I think even the best-intentioned dictators and tyrants, when they come to power, it's very difficult for them to let go. Caesar wanted to transform the Roman Empire, and in the short time he spent in Rome, 
he did achieve some reforms, notably to the Roman calendar. Yet time was not on his side. When Caesar became dictator for life, that life had only a few weeks left to run. Next time on Caesar, Death of a Dictator, we'll meet the conspirators who plunged their daggers into Julius Caesar on the Ides of March and explain what drove them to take this fateful but ultimately futile step. Thanks to my experts for this episode, Professor Philip Freeman of Pepperdine University, Dr Jane Draycott of Glasgow University and Dr Volker Heuschert of the Ashmolean Museum. This podcast was written and presented by me, Rob Attar, with additional checks by Rob Blackmore and our podcast editor, Ellie Cawthorn. The producer was Jack Bateman.